So when that first came out, I was a teenager living in Sweden and I went to a book signing event um, with Nick Hornby in Stockholm. And there, it was really sad because there was nobody there at all. It was just me. And he was just like this poor guy sitting at a table with nobody paying any attention at all. And then I got a book signed by him. And um, I feel like he owes me now. <laughs> You are here with the Boundless Book Club, where we are rocking out to the sweet, sweet music of pages turning. From the Emirates Literature Foundation in Dubai, I am Annabelle. I am Ahlam. And I'm Andrea. We are soon going to be joined by Jessica Anya Blau, the author of many novels, um, including her latest one, Mary Jane, just released but already hailed as the book of the summer. But first, let's open with a real crowd pleaser. Ahlam, I know that if your book was a song, we'd all be singing along to it. Do you want to start? I love the theme of today's episode. Uh, the book that I have chosen is High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. And I know, I know, I know this book is really old, but you know, it's, it's still so, so good. The way that I came to know about the book is through the Hulu series with Zoe Kravitz. It's a story of Rob, uh, who is 36. Um, he has gone throughout his life through a series of bad breakups and heartbreaks ever since the age of 13. And uh, at some point in his life, he started to work in a record shop and then he just sort of stayed in record shops and then now he owns a record shop. And the other two characters that are central to the book are Dick and Barry who work with him in the record shop. And so the best characters are always the ones who obsess about a certain subject. And these guys are like the know-it-alls of music and all sorts of genres. And they're sort of like, you know, they really understand that culture capital, that power of like knowledge when it comes to music. And they're almost like this club that hates anyone who doesn't have good taste in music. And they like sort of kick out people who come into the store and ask for really cheesy songs or bad music. And they're, they're, they almost like see it as their mission to, to, to educate anyone who walks in there into, you know, what's good and what's not. And they just have this like elitist almost knowledge about what good music is. Is it something that's, it's fun on paper, but you get the feeling that if you met them in real life, they'd just be insufferable. <laughs> yeah, and if you met them yeah. in real life, that they totally would not let you in in any way. They wouldn't be interested in a conversation with you. They kind of just want to hang out with each other, talk about music, and just leave everyone out. Unless and you work with them, right? In which unless- case, you'd be on their side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you've you've got to have that knowledge, though, that really in-depth knowledge. And they're constantly making lists like, OK, what's the, what's the top 10 of this year? What's the top 10 of the decade? What's the top 10 of all time? And they start to discuss like music. But the character Rob, so he obsesses over his breakups as much as he does about music. So it's like almost these two parallel obsessions. And his my girlfriend Laura has just broken up with him and moved out of the apartment, which triggers these feelings he's having about the past and sort of reflecting on every relationship he's had all the way from the first one when he was 13 that he says lasted six hours, <laughs> two hours each in between like classes over three days. And on the fourth day, he saw her with someone else and that was it. And then he has 
another relationship a couple of years later where he's dating someone who he knows is really out of his league and he's in constant fear of this person running off with someone else and constant fear of running off with someone else and it's really funny when he says and sure enough she ran off with someone else <laughs> when it actually happens and he's always like you know all of those breakups and all of those pains they're sort of in every new relationship that I'm in it's just a part of my story now with in any relationship and it's really funny because i mean it's not funny but he makes it really funny nick hornby makes it really effortlessly funny and i guess you could say it's a romantic comedy but in the most wonderful sense in in that it's it is effortlessly funny first of all and then it's just goes like straight to the heart in in the in the most unexpected ways um throughout the book one of the one of the really you know really nice lines that i loved in the book is um so he talks about music a lot and there's like a, a whole list of uh heartbreak songs or sad love songs that he puts and he says i've been listening to these songs on average like three times a week since i was since i was you know 13 and you know surely that does something to you <laughs> you know he says like we worry about kids being um exposed to violence and seeing like pain and in the world but then you know i've been listening to these songs constantly since i was 13 until today and so what came first the music or the misery did i listen to music because i was miserable or was i miserable because i listened to the music and do all these records turn you into a melancholy person that's amazing <laughs> do you have an example of what those songs were is it like unbreak my heart <laughs> no, i'll tell you so he has a whole list so only Love Can Break Your Heart by Neil Young. Last Night I Dreamed That Somebody Loved Me by The Smiths. Call Me, Aretha Franklin. I Don't Want to Talk About It by Anybody. And then there's Love Hurts and When Love Breaks Down and How Can You Mend a Broken Heart and The Speed of Sound of Loneliness and She's Gone. And I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I... I, you know, I, I really relate to that time when you're a teenager. I mean, it didn't stick with me forever, but like when you just listen to music all the time, I remember having headphones in my ears all night, you know, sleeping to it and waking up in the morning and the music is still in my ear and you kind of just like obsess over these songs and they become your reality and you understand the world through the lyrics of all of this music. And he, he just stayed like that until the age of 36 <laughs> I'm really I'm, I haven't finished the book yet I'm really enjoying it and I want to finish it and then I want to watch the original film and then compare all of it <laughs> so I'm obsessed Andrea you have a story about this don't you oh yeah. yes yeah so when that first came out I was a teenager living in Sweden and I went to a book signing event um, with Nick Hornby in Stockholm and there, it was really sad because there was nobody there at all it was just me and I mean you if just you're a... knew the power of Nick Hornby like <laughs> all the way from the very beginning when no one else had discovered him yet <laughs> I know and he was just like this poor guy sitting at a table with nobody paying any attention at all and then I got a book signed by him and um, I feel like he owns me now. I know. And you know what's really interesting? When I was researching the book and when I was researching him, I found that he went on Conan. And I'm always really impressed when an author is invited on a mainstream <laughs> talk show. I don't know why, because I feel like it hardly happens. I know there are rock stars in our world, but like in the mainstream media, like you don't see 
authors often being invited to, you know, you've got to be a J.K. Rowling or someone huge, or there must have been like a big blockbuster film over. I mean, there was a film for this, but, <laughs> you know, I'm always really impressed when an author is invited on a, uh, on a, on a talk show like that, which, which the whole country watches. I think he was, in this book, he was such a relatable character, like you say, even though most of us probably didn't, we weren't in that place when we're 36. You know, it's incredibly relatable when you're in your 20s. Yeah. I was just going to say, I love it when he goes and looks up his ex-girlfriend and she's like, oh, it's great to see you. Wonderful. You're not here to ask questions about back then, are you? And he's like, no, no, not at all. No. (laughs) Yeah, and he does. And, you know, in the same way that he thinks understanding music is like gives him this huge satisfaction and rearranging his records does the same. He thinks that he can go back and understand his relationships, meet his exes, rearrange his thoughts and get like some kind of peace or or closure or help him with with what's to come. Yeah, no, it's it's really fun to read and it was really fun to watch. I really recommend the Hulu series. (laughs) Speaking of high fidelity... I requested that book because I wanted I wanted to read it for so long and I requested it and it was kind of like sold out at bookshops and I kept asking for it for Christmas and I eventually got it and I still haven't read it and I think part of it is that I am I'm a big John Cusack fan so I can't watch High Fidelity until I've read the book Mm. and I think subconsciously besides having time to read I think it's also down to the fact that I subconsciously know that the moment that I read the book is the moment that I'll be able to watch the film and that will be it for John Cusack films that I haven't seen. Oh, he's fantastic <laughs> in it though. You can watch it multiple times. But read it at Christmas. I feel like it's a really good Christmas book. Yeah. I mean, I've saved it this long. I can save it a few months. <laughs> yeah, might as well. So we move from High Fidelity. So Ahlam's obsession with High Fidelity and my obsession with John Cusack to your book, Andrea, which is? My book is called, I'm trying to find the cover. Here we go. Um, My book is called White Tears by Harry Kunthru. And I have been in preparation for this. I've been turning it over in my mind, trying to come up with a description for it. And I think I'm going to go with, it is a hipster comeuppance thriller with a dash of horror. It's also been described as a literary ghost story, and it was one of the best books of the year in 2017, according to everybody, like Washington Post and GQ and The Economist and lots of people. And um, this is the story. So it it takes the theme of obsession and goes kind of extreme. So it starts with Seth and Carter, who meets in college, and they bond over music. And Seth is, um, he's an audio nerd. So he has like headphones a bit like this, but they're not headphones. They are um, microphones. So they record sounds everywhere he goes. He goes and records the audio landscape. And Carter, who is this, he's this popular kid. He's a trustafarian. He is a white kid who only listens to music by black artists because and this is a this is a quote. It was more intense and authentic than anything made by white people. He spoke as if white people were the name of an army or a gang, some organization to which he didn't belong. So he pulls Seth with him through this, this increasingly obscure musical obsessions. 
And after college, with his money, his family money, they started a recording studio where they sell vintage sounds and sampling to, to the big chart-topping musicians. And they are so painfully hipster. They consider themselves audio craftsmen, artisans of analog. So you can picture what kind of, what kind of people they are. Um, and then one day, Seth is out recording the audio scape of the city. He's walking around, capturing the sounds of New York, and he hears this old blues tune, like just a line that he's never heard before. And it, it, it's striking enough that he remembers it. And then weeks later, he's back at home and he's listening to this recording with Carter, and although he only re remembers hearing one line, there's a whole song there. And Carter goes absolutely wild about it. And they start uh, manipulating it and editing it and cleaning up the audio until they have this really clear a cappella. And it's, it's so beautiful. It gives them goosebumps. It's, it's just there's something really hypnotizing about it. And this is, this is where it all starts. It's, it's creeping discomfort comes, comes in at this point because Seth's instincts tell him that he should cover his ears and, and try to unhear it. It's, it. There's something about it that's just wrong and his finger is hovering above the delete button, but he, he can't do it because his song has got its hooks in them. And they tinker with it and they fiddle about with it until it's... Um, it sounds like an actual real recording from the 1920s. And they, just without thinking really, they put a name to it. They decide that it's by a musician called Charlie Shaw. And they release it on this music streaming platform where it goes viral and it goes huge. But this tune, which was written and recorded probably almost a hundred years ago, was actually recorded by a black man called Charlie Shaw. And this tune doesn't belong to, to Seth and to Carter. And uh, this man who did record it, Charlie Shaw, he had a really, like a really difficult life as a black man in the US. And, and he had suffered enough. So now Seth and Carter starts hunting for the truth about this song and something is hunting them. And we're not quite sure what it is. And as we go through the novel, time starts to blur and you're not quite sure if it's in the past or in the present mm -hmm. and um it's just it's completely original it's a thriller so it's got like lots of um lots of pace but it's also a statement about cultural appropriation about like the shady history of the you know the good and the great of new york society who are, you know, the pillars of community today and, and, you know, how they came to be in that position. And I can't say any more about it, but it's just, it's such a thrilling read. And it's all about, it's all about the beats. It's all about the music. And as you read it, you just really, really want to hear this tune. Sounds great. When, when is it set? So is it modern, modern day? Yeah. So, so Carter and Seth are like, they're like hipsters in Brooklyn today-ish or 2017. Mm. Um, but then obviously it, it starts to blur. There's a backstory about how this, what happened to this recording. Cause there was only back in the, back in the day, if you were a black musician, you could 
work really hard to save up money to go to rent the slot, your 30 minutes in recording studio and press one record. And that was mm. like, that was all you had. So people who did that, those records would pass through hands perhaps, but incredibly difficult to get hold of. So there's a bit of backstory around that as well. And it's fascinating. And Harry Kunstrow is like, he's just one of the coolest authors. You know how some authors are just really cool and they are writing really awesome op-eds for the New Yorker and they are mm. just the best. He's one of those. And his wife is also an author. Um, and they're just, you know how you have like your author couples that you just really like? They're one of those. That's awesome. Has he written a lot more? I have, I've never heard of him personally. Yeah, he's written quite a few books and he's a mm -hmm. journalist as well, I think, or at least mm -hmm. he's asked to write um, to write articles. So he's written. Okay. Uh, oh. So this isn't his, his debut, is it? No. No, okay. no, he's he's written, he wrote a book recently, I think, called Red Pill, which, again, sort of taps into that subculture in the US of, you know, the red pillars, the, the QAnon type of people. Um, he's written Gods Without Men. And uh, I think his first book might have been The Impressionist. And Transmission was also one of the early ones. I can't remember all of them. And that's my recommendation for today. There's so many great books about music. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was just going to say that I was I don't know why I was expecting someone to do the the like autobiography of an of a musician or something like that. <laughs> well, I I was tempted by the Lenny Kravitz uh, biography or autobiography, mm. but I did I mentioned to Andrea um that it was mainly the cover that uh, I wanted to focus on. <laughs> so, so I didn't think there'd be much content from me. <laughs> the Kravitzes would be taking over the episode. <laughs> I'm sure you could spend five minutes talking about the cover, Annabelle. <laughs> Probably, actually. <laughs> so what did you choose? I am talking about a book called Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau. And it is a cross or it is described as like the tagline is a cross between almost famous and uh, Daisy Jones and the six, which I think is a book that everyone is talking about at the moment. So when you look up books that are connected to music, Daisy Jones and the six is one that comes up quite a lot. And if you've seen almost famous, you'll um, understand that as well. And if those references mean absolutely nothing to you, essentially it is a coming of age story set in 1970s Baltimore and music is at the heart of the story. So you've got this 14 year old girl called Mary Jane and she lives in a very conservative household. Um, I think she's an only child and her mum and dad, like her dad doesn't really speak to her. He's, it's one of those, it's one of those households where the mother is the, you know, the housewife, dad comes home at dinner time, eats dinner, reads the paper. They have very civil discussions and everyone leaves and that is life essentially and her existence at home with her mum is you know the only interaction she really has with her mum like they don't say I love you to each other as a family that's not something that they do she helps her mum with the groceries the dinner the the household chores like she's there isn't a contentious relationship there but it it isn't it's very practical based relationship 
Um, and then this, you know, she's she's 14 years old. She wants to get out of the house over the summer. She doesn't really want to spend it with her mum doing those things all summer. So she volunteers to be a nanny for a family that lived down the road called the Cones. And Dr. Cone is a psychiatrist and uh, his wife, Bonnie, she's a housewife as well, but she she doesn't make dinner. She The house is a mess when she arrives. And she's there to look after their five-year-old daughter, Izzy, who is absolutely adorable um, and is one of just the highlights of this whole story. Now, the bit that I want to read from you, read to you rather, is where she meets Izzy and she knows that she's excited to look after her um, because she sees a lot in in Izzy um, that she sees in herself as well. Like there's, she's a kindred spirit essentially. The more Mrs. Cone told me about Izzy on that phone call, the more I wanted to take care of her. All I could think was how much nicer it would be to spend my summer looking after a little girl who had no friends than going to a country club, pl- country club pool and being the girl who had no friends. I barely listened when Mrs. Cone told me how much they'd pay. The money felt like a bonus. Before the call had ended, I decided I'd save everything I earned and then buy my own record player at the end of the summer, one I could keep in my room. Maybe it would even have separate speakers. If there was enough money left over, I'd buy a radio so I could listen to American Top 40, the songs from the records that my mother would never let me buy. So music in her own household consists of like church music. So she goes mm-hmm. to Sunday school. She has the most beautiful voice because she's uh, she sings in the church choir. And the only time she talks to her mother or references songs that aren't necessarily church music things like the jesus christ superstar soundtrack and godspell as well her mum just just does not approve she's like i don't think those are respect so she she clearly has to find some sort of outlet so she goes to work for this family and she discovers that they are like the opposite of what she's used to they they kiss each other with just abandon and they're always telling each other that they love one another and the house is completely chaotic and there's no food in the fridge or the milk has just gone completely sour and then a few days later she's told that she can't tell anyone about two new guests who are moving into the house Um, and it turns out that it's a rock star called Jimmy and his singer actress girlfriend Sheba And I think Sheba is meant to be a sort of Marie Osmond type. They're there because Jimmy is trying to get over an addiction. And Dr. Cohn has said goodbye to all of his patients essentially for the summer and has said, you're going to move into my house with me so that we can keep this quiet and you can be away from prying eyes and focus on your recovery. And it's just about how that disrupts the Cohn family Um, Mm -hmm. And also the impact that that has on Mary Jane being in the house and seeing the way Sheba and Jimmy are just in terms of the way they live life and their kind of bohemian spirit and the way the Cone family makes Mary Jane part of their family as well. And it's just, it's it's a really kind of, it's a really lovely coming of age story. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I love that the way that life altering interaction between a girl who's been super sheltered in a conservative family and then getting access to a rock star so intimately and what that does to that person's life. You just know they're never going to be the same again. Yeah, it's really sweet as well, because they come to see her. They have to wear disguises, but they come to the church where she sings to support her. 
Um, and no one else sees them, but she sees them there at the back and it's really sweet. She has this wonderful voice and all she knows are church songs. So she starts to, she starts to hear other music as well when she's at this other house. And the fun thing about this book as well is the author has put together a Spotify playlist of music that is referenced in the book uh, and also just generally that goes with the book. So you can listen to the songs while you read or you can listen to it after you've read the book. So there's a little nice tie-in. And, and what I love is when the, these, these like names of songs are listed in the book, it actually gives you a chance to go up and go and look up some of this, these songs that you don't know and, and learn about them. Because if you hear it in a movie, the likelihood that you're going to write down the name of a song or <laughs> like to go and search it afterwards, it's not much. It's a lot more of an intimate interaction. You kind of pause and say, wait, I, I really want to know what he's talking about here. So I'm going to go and hear this song and come back to it. <laughs> Did you do that with High Fidelity? Yeah, I like I've, I've underlined a couple of songs that I want to that I want to read. I'm still reading through the book, but I definitely there's a couple that I want to go go and look up. I think I got the impression from hearing descriptions of that book that I, I just thought it would be 90 percent him drowning out his sorrows with the Smiths <laughs> <laughs> just the whole way through. No, I think there is a diversity because there's like three different characters and they, they're all going through very different things. And then mm. there's an interaction with the musician as well. Um, and it's not only music lists, they make movie lists as well. It's like all sorts of culture, best books. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, so it's it's really cool. Now we're joined by Jessica Anya Blau, the author of the new book, Mary Jane, a novel which has been hailed as the best book of the summer. Nick Hornby, who we spoke about a little earlier, is a fan, and so are we. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. It's great to have you on the Balanced Book Club. Um, so I'm, I've been dying to ask you about the inspiration of your main character, who gives her name to the book as well, Mary Jane, and if she's based on a real person in your life. No, I mean, if anything, she's based on me. <laughs> I grew up in Southern California and she's, you know, in Baltimore in the 70s. And it's, you know, it's very much not my childhood at all. My family wasn't like that at all. Uh, it, actually, my family was like the cones. I grew up in a very sort of tidy, maybe too conservative neighborhood in Southern mm -hmm. California. And my family were the kind of hippie freak outliers. And we had the messy house and the refrigerator with all the hideous molding food in it. So, but internally, I was like Mary Jane, like I love tidiness and order and I love Broadway musicals and I love singing and I, I loved mothering. And so internally she's, you know, it's like me popped into somebody else's body in a different time and place. It, and to me, it would have been a dream come true to suddenly be a summer nanny and hang out with a rock star and a movie star and a cute kid. Like I would have loved that at 14, but I was going to the beach and hanging out with the surfers. And, you know, I had in, in Southern California, this tar comes up on the beaches. And so you always had tar on the bottom of your feet. And, and in summer, you just didn't put shoes on. So you'd have this sort of like black, it's almost like you had a built-in shoe on the bottom of your feet from hanging out <laughs> on the beach. It was a childhood very different than Mary Jane's, but internally she's sort of me. Sounds like a, a really interesting mix of a lot of different things and aspects of you know what what happened when you were growing up but beyond the title character did you have any real life rock stars or musicians in mind when you were writing this so with like the character of Jimmy for example or the character of Sheba 
Yeah. I mean, for Jimmy, I had just read Keith Richards' memoir. I don't know if you read it. It was really good. But it's not Keith Richards. I mean, Keith Richards is English and he's, you know, but he, he was a heroin addict and he played guitar. So a lot of the internal stuff of what it feels like to be a heroin addict or, or what you're thinking of or what you're driving towards or even how Keith Richards felt about playing guitar. I sort of put this in Jimmy. But I wanted Jimmy to be just sort of this really good, nice Southern guy who's loving and open and kind. And he's, you know, he's afflicted with heroin addiction. He doesn't choose to be an addict. And and I just wanted to be just this really all around great guy. Not that Keith Richards isn't, but he's, you know, Jimmy's a very sort of American guy. And Sheba, you know, I mean, I was thinking of all those stars who have one name, like it's just the power in a single name, like Cher, Madonna, for Sheba, I wanted her, her to have that power, but also be incredibly kind and compassionate. Somebody who doesn't go around and exploit their own power or abuse it. Somebody who has it and is able to not exercise it at all moments. And so, and, and I was also thinking of the 70s, all those stars, how stars in the 70s, it was like they had this public persona and you didn't entirely know what was going on behind closed doors. You know, it was like, you look at Donnie and Marie and the Partridge family and the Brady Bunch and, you know, all these sort of classic American, uh, you know, kind of bands and groups and share. And behind the scenes, there was all this chaos and disorder and dysfunction that we all go through. But there was this sheen to stars that sort of started eroding with, you know, media. And, and now it's like 24 hours star watching TV and text. And like, you can't go to rehab. It's hard to go to rehab and not let everyone know. Mm-hmm. And so I had, so the seventies, it was like, I wanted it to be at a time when a rock star and a movie star could hide out in somebody's house and there's no cell phones and there's no internet and you could be anonymous and hidden away. And so she, I just wanted her to be somebody who had this really big public persona. But then when you got down to it, she was, she was just this great woman. When you when you came up with the idea for this story, um, did you know that you wanted to write a book around music, or how did the idea start? Was it the story of a character, or was it about writing a book that revolves around music? It was a story. I had been at a party, and a woman had mentioned that she was a summer nanny in the seventies somewhere, uh, and that a famous person was in living on the third floor for the entire summer. And nobody knew this famous person was in her town. And I just thought, wow, that's the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. It was just so cool. And so, so I started with that and, you know, and this woman told me nothing else about it. I don't know nothing about her life for the people. I mean, I know nothing about her story except for that simple fact, but that simple fact to me was just like amazing. And I thought, well, how fun would it be if it was this rock star and this movie star and if it was this 14-year-old girl? And I was living at Baltimore when I started the book. Mm-hmm. I, I finished it when I was in New York City. But, and I've been living in Baltimore for quite some time. So I just, you know, it was, it was sort of started with that single idea. And then I had the character. And then it was sort of like fantasy dream. Like, wouldn't that be fun? Uh, and then Baltimore was so strange and foreign to me. Like I said, I grew up in Southern California. And, this, and I lived in that neighborhood where this story takes place designed by the Olmsted brothers who designed Central Park and it was this it's this very sort of historic beautiful neighborhood but it has this really terrible history of racism and, and you know this awful history and so you know you can't live there and not be aware of the present and the past and and so I just it just seemed like a really great setting to put somebody who was going to deal with sort of I don't want to say antiquated but really kind of conservative ideas and values and be faced with 
more fair and honest, you know, just faced with a different set of values. There are some things within her life that that doesn't change. She loves the church in the beginning and she loves the church in the end. Uh, but she's exposed to a bigger world. She has this very small world in this house, in this neighborhood. And, you know, and so to me, it was like a really interesting setting in place. So I sort of took this idea from this one sentence somebody said to me at a party once, and I threw it into Baltimore, which was always so odd and fascinating to me, you know, and it has this interesting and shameful past and, and, and has a really interesting present. And I threw it into this neighborhood kind of through somebody like internally, who's internally me. And then it was like, what would happen? And when I, you know, the opening scene of the book, you know, Mary Jane walks into the cone house and sees this sort of mess and chaos and clutter that's unlike anything she's seen in any house in the neighborhood. And when I wrote that scene, I was sort of writing my childhood house, which was messy and cluttered and chaotic. And as soon as I wrote that scene, which was the first scene I wrote, then I knew it was going to be on the other side of it. I knew that Mary Jane was going to have this really organized, tidy, you know, and and not that tidiness goes with cons- being conservative because I'm incredibly tidy now. And But, you know, I knew what was going to be on the other side of, of behind her after she entered this house. So for me, a story always starts with just a single idea. And so for me, it was just the single idea of the nanny and there's famous people living on the third floor. And then with each thing I write, something else opens up to me. So as soon as I wrote the house, then the, the, you know, the two homes opened up. And as soon as I wrote the neighborhood, then the history of the neighborhood opened up. It was just, you know, everything sort of unfolds in my head as, as I move forward. I have a couple of quick fire questions for you. Sure. Okay. One, have you ever been in a band? Has anyone ever written a song about you? And talk us through the Spotify playlist for your book, because I've been listening to Al Green today and it's made me very happy. Oh, it's amazing, right? And that song in particular is Love and Happiness. Yeah. That song, I can't even tell you how much I love that song. I'm so glad you've been loving it. It's an amazing song. All right, have I ever been in a band? No, but I love singing and I used to always be in chorus and choir. And has anyone written a song about me? Yes, a boy once wrote a song about me. And I remember that the... The chorus was, you shook me, baby. You really shook me, baby. You shook me, baby. And uh, I remember it was written on lined paper and he gave it to me and my friends and I just reading it over and over and me thinking, I can't believe he wrote this song about me. And I think the title of it was, you shook me, baby. <laughs> and uh, so the Spotify playlist, I probably listened to a thousand, I, not even a thousand, thousands of songs in the time I was writing the book. I had a car and I had it on serious seventies and I would just listen to seventies and then I would listen, you know, it was just, and so I, so to pick my favorite songs was impossible. So I tried to pick my favorites from sort of each category of songs, you know, like the ones that just made me so happy and brought me so much joy. So there's a song from Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical in there, because I too love Broadway musicals and I love singing soundtracks. And I love that musical because I, I it was just, because it has good childhood memories and I have, Oh, on the, you know, there's Al Green on there, you know, which just that song is amazing to me. Uh, Parliament up for the downstroke. I mean, I hadn't heard Parliament before I was writing this book. And so when I, so when I found someone new and I found a lot of new people, when I found Parliament, it was, I couldn't believe it. Like I can't believe this band exists and I never had heard them before. And that song in particular, I just, 
love. I mean, I love funk. I love to dance. So all those dance songs on there. I think, did I put Earth, Wind & Fire on there? I, I was switching yes. stuff around a lot. Yeah. Earth, Wind & Fire. And I think I put Bonnie Raitt and John Prine on there. You know, and that's like from my childhood. My mother would listen to Bonnie Raitt and John Prine. Like everything sort of, everything on there is sort of kind of straight from my heart in one way or another. Do you think that you could write a story about somebody who loves heavy metal or <laughs> opera? Yeah. I I mean, I, I genuinely like people because I've just found that if you're alone with somebody, or you spend enough time with somebody, you talk to them long enough, you always, it always comes down to the same thing. It's like everybody just wants to be heard and loved and have fun and smile and feel good. And you want to feel good talking to somebody. And it's like, it kind of doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or, you know, I mean, it's like you can take people from the farthest parts of the earth and put them together. And it's like the the basic human qualities are all the same and you can always connect. I mean, obviously sociopaths would kind of fall outside this range. I'm talking about (laughs) other than sociopaths. Thank you so much for joining us today. But that is it, actually. The show is over right now. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you want to let us know about your favorite books about music, you know what to do. We're putting all our contact details in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed these book recommendations. We know it's only rock and roll, but we like it. Mm -hmm.